We tolerate winters such as these, when hens and roosters freeze to death, their faces mere clumps of ice after they turn windward for a final desperate attempt to survive. Have you ever watched a pheasant freeze? I've seen the habitat loss, and now I've seen enough. Upland bird restoration, the time is now. Those are the words written by Dennis Anderson back on March 7th, 1982. And with the, uh, the anniversary of the first ever Pheasants Forever Banquet on April 15th, we are extremely honored for this episode of On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever to be joined by Dennis Anderson for the Pheasants Forever origin story. Dennis, thank you very much for uh, coming into the office and um, getting a little nostalgic with us and telling us about the history of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Well, I'm happy to be here. Um, 1982 seems like a long time ago. What year were you born? <laughs> 1982. <laughs> 86 here. Uh, I was go. born before that time. Okay. <laughs> I was born in 73. So so the voices that you hear for this episode of On the Wing podcast, uh, of course, uh, this is Bob St. Pierre, born 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have Anthony Houck, uh, born in 1982. Yeah, I, I'm that, that article... Dennis was March seventh. Is that correct? Nineteen eighty-two. So uh, I was I was still in utero. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I was thinking of you and all people, <laughs> all people yet unborn. So. And uh, rounding out t- today's <laughs> podcast is Jared Wickland, born in. May 16th, 1986. I'm not sure how to top the in utero well, conversation, but may- perhaps perhaps my. Uh, Perhaps my parents were at the first banquet or something, and there's where it all started. I don't know. <laughs> well, we're, we are going to dive into the first banquet because one of the things uh, – well, we'll get to the first banquet in a moment. But I, I want to start with, um, uh, with the article because the article mm-hmm. that you wrote – at the time, you were working for the Pioneer Press and Dispatch. That article was the catalyst mm-hmm. for the creation of Pheasants Forever. What – what was happening or what happened that, that winter that led to that article? Well, um, we need to just help me a little bit here. So the article, the, the, the anniversary of the first banquet, which is going to, we're going to talk about, which is April 15th, mm-hmm. right? And that year was 1983. 1983. Right? Yep. So this article, or column actually, <clears throat> I wrote columns, was published a year before. before. Yeah, that's a great right? clarification. So, so 13 months before, right? right? And it wasn't really so much the... Um, it wasn't the the column. Um, in a way, it was inspiring the formation of Pheasants Forever. It was more the f- the idea for the formation of Pheasants Forever that uh, had been kicked around in my head, and um, the uh, head of a friend of mine as well, um, named Norbert Berg who at the time was an executive with Control Data Corporation, which was uh, no longer a, uh, exists. Mm-hmm. Some of its vestiges exist, but um, 
as a large corporation, which kind of spearheaded the whole electronics revolution in the Twin Cities and that whole type of industry. So, um, but backing up still further, I went to college out in, at the University of Minnesota, Morris. And uh, for those of you who are familiar, A, with Minnesota, and B, very familiar with Minnesota, you know where Morris is, which is in the west central part of the state. Actually, uh, Minnesota describes portions or, or areas of its state in a sort of a weird way. West Central in this case means it's very much west <laughs> and about an hour from South Dakota, but central north to south. Mm -hmm. So it's actually western Minnesota. And at the time, I started, I, I finished high school in 1969, and um, so I entered college there in 1969 and at the time pheasant hunting was very good around morris and so was duck hunting um we didn't really think of it we're young and so forth and the idea of relativity didn't enter in i mean we didn't have any money to go to south dakota i guess we probably knew there were a lot of pheasants in south dakota but there were plenty of pheasants where we were um you know you go out after school um, or instead of school, and, um, you know, you could pick up a couple birds, and the same with ducks, and, you know, it was abundant, uh, abundant in our world, you know, all we ever needed. Um, so that was when I finished school there then in 73 or so, every year thereafter, my friends I went to school with and hunted with, we opened up the pheasant season in Morris, and there was a, by our standards, a, um, modern and new motel um, in town called the Sunwood Inn. And in those days, following 73, all the way up through, I don't know, mid to later 80s, maybe even 90 or so, you couldn't get a room there unless you planned well in advance. Mm. And when we converged on the Sunwood Inn in Morris on the Friday night before the opener, it was like a pickup truck, um, you know, car lot. Mm -hmm. And there were dogs running everywhere, and they... And perhaps foolishly allowed dogs in the room. And so you would see on the main floor, you would see the windows open and people lifting their dogs in and out of the <laughs> rooms and, and so forth. So, Sounds um, like my kind of place. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and the hunting was, you know, good. And they had a hot tub afterward and a place to clean your birds afterwards. So you'd clean your birds and we'd sit in the hot tub and have a beer. And, you know, and in many respects, it was a reunion, but it was also similar for... Uh, a reasonable number of years to the experience we had when we were in school, there were birds around. Mm -hmm. But rather um, quickly, you know, relatively speaking in historical terms, we started to see habitat going. Um, places we would hunt no longer, they were plowed or um, drained, you know, wetland. And it was it was noticeable enough to us. I mean, I would hunt there multiple times a year, but not just the opener, but it was noticeable enough, enough to us, and we were essentially rubes, you know, and we weren't <laughs> biologists or professionals in any way, but we, we were hunters, that um, we could see where this thing was headed. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of uh, bar room talk, if you want to call it that, among us in the late 70s, um, set the stage in terms of our thinking for what what was happening, mm -hmm. you know. And then uh, to back up a little bit, I went uh, to grad school. I finished. I moved to Ely and worked. Uh, ran a little newspaper up there. 
then came down and worked for the St. Paul paper, and I got the outdoor columnist job in 1980. So by the time I got that job, we, my friends and I, were, you know, well along in our mindset that things were going south, yeah. and uh, rather quickly. At the time, Joe Alexander was the DNR commissioner, and Joe um, served longer in that capacity than any other commissioner in history. He was a game warden when there were game wardens, not conservation officers, came up through the ranks. And um, a real uh, class guy in, a, in many, many respects. And uh, But what was interesting about him and what I saw in him that, to be honest, I haven't really seen in a in a DNR commissioner since then was, um, and he had permission from, he served under three governors, but he had permission particularly from Governor Rudy Purpich, who's now passed on, to basically um, call it like it is. And Purpich came to that mindset because he was from northern Minnesota, from Hibbing, Hibbing, I want to say, and uh, he was a dentist, and he was an Iron Ranger, and he was a tough politician. But he had had bad experiences with the DNR with another uh, forestry issue hmm. and had hired, and I think I had this right correctly, had hired a, a guy from Ohio to run the DNR, bring him in from outside, which that didn't work so well. First, you know, the DNR is its own clique in a way, and it didn't work so well. And things really went upside down. So that was Perpich's experience as a governor, and, and I think before that as a legislator. So what he had, Joe Alexander there, who called a spade a spade with regard to conservation, came up through the ranks, knew what was going on out in the country because he had been a game warden and a conservation officer. When somebody wanted to drain a wetland, he just said flat out no. And he said, you know, and Purpose said, you know, I don't care. Essentially, he said, I don't care how you run the DNR, just keep it out of my office. You know, it's, that stops with you. So he had a free reign. And Alexander was a good guy and a friendly guy and an accessible guy. So I is writing the column in St. Paul. Of course, I knew him. And I remember one time in his office bemoaning to him about pheasants and saying, you know, this is this is a bad deal and we've got to do something and things are going to continue to go south. They have already in this relatively short time that we're talking about. And uh, I'll never forget, he said to me, um, there will always be vestiges of pheasants, but pheasants as a sporting bird in Minnesota are done. Hmm. And, and I, what, this is 1980? Well, it would have been in 80, 81, hmm. 82, um, in that area. It was certainly 80, probably 81 because... And I took that, you know, and I'm thinking, man, of course, I was younger and and, uh, and more, you know, I had dogs and I was into it. And, uh, um, and I, it seemed reasonable to me that you could uh, resolve, the, address this issue positively mm -hmm. and so forth. And South Dakota had already started what they called a pheasant restoration plan. So, and I, what I was advocating for in that conversation, and then with my friends from Morris, and then ultimately with my friend Norberg in our conversations was, we need a pheasant restoration plan, you know. And then finally, the, the excerpt you wrote, or you read from my column, um, though I don't remember that winter per se, mm -hmm. obviously speaks to a real bad winter that we had. Right. It, that, you certainly get that impression yeah, reading it, you know, 35-plus right. years later. That compounded the 
problem. So <clears throat> at, at what, I, what I did, to my recollection, and I, uh, I have these records that are pretty good, but what I did with that column, which was followed up probably the next week or two weeks later for sure with another column, was lay the groundwork for what was already foretold, which was they were going to form a group. Hmm. Okay, and so it and so I explain it backward that way a little bit sure. to say that 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 wasn't a throwout column in and of itself. It was a culmination of this thinking and kind of think, and then it was to see what the response was, um, and then just to kind of further address that. So. At the time, our old building in St. Paul at the Pioneer Press was at 55 East 4th Street, and it was basically a place for, um, you know, 'er (laughs) ne'er-do-wells and uh, mice, you know, for the most part. It was an old building, and you had to get get the papers at night. Uh, When I first started there, I had to go get the papers at night. I worked the night shift as an editor for a couple years. And uh, you went down in a tunnel all the way down this old basement. It went down in an elevator. And then the basement was, for what, from what we could tell, haunted. And <laughs> then you walked under 4th Street in a tunnel. And then you came up in the noisy clanging of the press room, which is right across the street. And then all those guys over there had their paper hats on that folded them. You may, you guys wouldn't ever see that firsthand, but it may be in an old-time movie. <laughs> they had their paper hats made out of a sheet of the paper. And then during their break, after the first run, when you go get the first... Hazard. Yeah. Yeah. Were those the ne'er do wells? <laughs> uh, no, no. We were the ne'er do wells. It was the era of the three martini no, lunch, though. No, no. Sure. They actually worked. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. They actually worked, but we were the ne'er do wells. But um, in fact, so yes, so after that 10 o'clock run, and I t- would take some papers back through the tunnel and upstairs to the, you know, the editors and journalists who were working at night to see so we could correct, hopefully, some more of our mistakes before the final run, which was like at 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, then, uh, you know, that was uh, a time of a lot of stuff going on where there were it was freer than it is today in the business. And as you know, now I write for the Minneapolis paper and, um, I couldn't today. I don't, I don't think I would dare today just write a column and say, tell me what you think and, mm-hmm. and uh, let's form this group. Although, as you recall, in 2008, we pushed that envelope pretty hard with the legacy act yeah. down there. But, um, and you somewhat did that recently too, with, um, uh, articles asking for, um, what would you do about recruiting new hunters? Right. But in this instance, people actually sent me cash. Mm-hmm. And um, we had that building of 55 East 4th Street <laughs> in my office, <laughs> along with the other really, really ne'er-do-wells, Bill Farmer and some other guys. They had extra space across the street in, in an older, older yet building. And so I had this big, um, cold, drafty room which with a desk in it. And soon thereafter, after I wrote that column, I had stacks of envelopes because, don't forget, we were leveraging the heyday in people's minds in Minnesota. They could still remember the 50s and through the mid-60s mm-hmm. and when we actually had tons of pheasants. Soil bank era. That, that it was like South Dakota, mm-hmm. you know, historically has been. And so, yeah, everybody said, yeah, let's do this, you know, and let's, uh, I'll do whatever you want and, and so forth. So that's really kind of, 
how it got started. And when I wrote that next column, which I don't have in front of me, that's when I went to a guy by the name of Kirk Lytle, who was an artist there, and I think he's still there. And I uh, had the um, manila envelope full of all of our pheasant photos from uh-huh. the library. And I threw it at him, and I, see the, I said, I need a pheasant logo for this group today. <laughs> and he painted the one wow. you're still using today no with the, the rooster, yeah. So let me ask you a question about, so you wrote this article. Was there a call to action for people to send money? On, ongoing. And no, I didn't really say send money, but people did oftentimes. It so was, it that was, was a pretty intense reaction. Oh, it was, it was huge. And I think in some of the subsequent columns, I detail how many people wrote and so forth. But people would um, call and write and say, I'll do something and so forth. And some people who are still alive today and, and in some respects still active, certainly with pheasants, um, you called right away a guy named Doug Lavander out in mm-hmm. Candyoy County. Um, he called me, says, I know pheasants. He essentially said, I know pheasants better than anybody knows pheasants. And if <laughs> you want to start something, I'll help you. And I said, well, um, how do I know you know anything about pheasants? And I would just play along. Well, I didn't care. I mean, I, who did I have? I didn't have anybody to help. And the guy said, to help me. I said, how do I know you know anything about pheasants? And he said, well, I conduct my own spring counts. And so that qualified him. (laughs) But he put together that first, the second banquet ultimately in Candyoy County. And another guy, actually the first guy, um, God darn it, um, his name's slipping, he's slipping me right now, but he's still prominent in the in everything I'll think of it. But uh, he called and he said, I'll hold the fundraiser for you. Hmm. And so I said, okay, you know, where do you want to do this? He says, my house. He said, will you come? And I said, yeah, okay. You know, and it was in St. Paul. It was in that address, you know. And this was before, you guys probably don't remember, this before GPS and stuff. So I, <laughs> I actually had to look it up. And I uh, drove up to this, you know, house. It was quite a small house in the St. Paul neighborhood. And got out and went in there. And, and as I recall, there were like five guys and a case of beer. Mm. And that was a fundraiser. <laughs> so, um that sounds like a fun razor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of things happen. But the idea, the, the ultimately the point was, once the idea was out there, it struck a chord, mm-hmm. fortunately, with people who still remembered and thought this possible. Some of them naively so, including me, because I remember writing in a subsequent column, if not that first one, that before we're done, we'll have roosters marching up 4th Street. I said, so... Um, that really hasn't come to pass. <laughs> <laughs> not uh, yet. Anyways, not yet. Right? No, there's always hope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeff Finden was part of that, the Pioneer Press at right. the time too. Yep. And he, he was part of that initial group. Well, here's how it worked. Um, Jeff at the time was a national advertising manager. Okay. A completely different part of the newspaper. And typically I wouldn't, you know, journalists don't see those people, uh, the people in, um, but there was an intermediary there who also played a role um, uh, who was, his name was Bill Farmer. Okay. And Bill was, um, uh, he, he held a number of positions as a journalist in the newsroom over the years, primarily um, as a humor columnist. But uh, Bill was essentially so funny that um, he kind of got fired. <laughs> <laughs> Um, ultimately, but he was also the travel editor. I mean, he's a, he's an extremely funny guy. Huh. He, he used to write jokes 
at the time for CCO AM radio for their morning show, and he'd just sit at that night and write jokes for huh. him. And then he and then he appeared on the show. But so Finn or Farmer was in the newsroom with me, mm-hmm. and uh, so he um, Farmer was a kind of a cut up, you know. So you see, he's me, the young kid, writing about all this stuff and everything. So he and I become friends, sort of associates, mm-hmm. you know. And he uh, nicknamed me Killer because he'd always, uh, after, you know, Monday or Tuesday when I came over the weekend, he'd say, well, what did you kill this sure. weekend or something, you know. And so, but he was very good friends with Finden. Gotcha. Okay. So he was an intermediary. And, and at the time then, uh, Jeff and I and uh, Farmer would have lunch uh, frequently together. And those guys more than I because they were more, I was more often gone. But frequently. Okay. Out killing stuff. Yeah, you know, doing stuff. You know, that, that's just the difference between you and me though dennis i gotta say like if i if my nickname was killer i'd insist that people call me that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah can, um can we call you that yeah well uh anyway that was a thing farmer farmer was uh farmer was a funny guy still around i haven't i every once in a while I bump into him but anyway so uh as i as i proffered this idea through mm-hmm. the column and then it became a topic, a column, or a topic of lunch and with other people. Denny Lean, I don't know if you've ever yeah, been, you know member, Denny? member number three. Yeah. Right? Well, that's because there no, wasn't a number one or two, though. Is that right? Yeah. He was a reporter in the newsroom, still a good friend of mine, retired recently, <laughs> maybe a, few, a couple years ago. And uh, I said to him, when, I think probably after the second column or so, when I said, we're going to have this bird club and we're going to mm-hmm. call it Pheasants Forever. So I announced it, you know. And he's he's from Marshall, so he's hunted a lot of birds right. and likes likes bird hunting plenty, and dogs. And so he said to me, or uh, so whatever I said, something on along the order of give me fifteen bucks and you can be uh, uh, number three. <laughs> okay. <you know? laughs> and uh, and I said, well, why can't I be number one? I know you don't have any other members. You know, cause <laughs> we're in the newsroom. And he said, I don't. And I said, I don't think we should have a one or a two. You know. <laughs> But then, you know, sadly for him, years later when you guys changed the computer system, mm-hmm. he lost that number. So he's a high number now, <clears throat> as they well, all are. Well, you know why that happened? Because we didn't have one and two when it was like a Y2K. Yeah. It was a Y2K thing. Oh, is that right? No, I mean, no. <laughs> But I don't know why. Sounds, yeah. sounds <laughs> legitimate. It sounds legitimate. I don't know why it happened. But, um, yeah, so he lost that. So he was actually the first paying uh, member. Hmm. Um so that's important to remember in this case that, um, you know, so, yeah, it was my idea and I wrote the column. But as it, as it is, we're sitting with four people in a room here. Mm-hmm. And I've subsequently been involved in similar situations, you know, where we raise money to buy a helicopter for the um, Fish and Wildlife Service agents and ducks and so forth, that <clears throat> none of these things happen in a vacuum. Sure. That uh, people, uh, everybody around contributes. Um, it's it's an interesting, you know, starting something from scratch is uh, very interesting because as my friend Norb, who was, as I said, a seasoned executive at the time, and he was critical because, one, you know, I didn't know, at that time I didn't know how to 
form a corporation, which we needed. And I, the Skyways in St. Paul, when uh, and we'd have lunch, when I'd have lunch, I bumped into and met this lawyer who was a hunter. Mm-hmm. And so then I subsequently said to him, I said, hey, we're going to start this bird club. We need a lawyer to get us a 501c3. And he said, yeah, okay, I'll do that for you free, you know. And so weeks went by and then months and nothing happened. And I'd see him and nothing happened. Then he started avoiding me. And I, and among the many insightful things Norb said to me when I said that to him, and he and I would talk every day virtually, you know, it was, you got the wrong lawyer, mm. you know. And so when I figured that out, again, we go back to Joe Alexander. But now Finden is, we're kind of a duo in this thing. Mm-hmm. And Joe Alexander says, go talk to this guy named... Um, Bob Larson. Bob Larson, yeah. who was then um, had a small firm, uh, why is that called Larson and Lambert? And uh, he said he's involved in, you know, I think he helped with TIP, the formation of yeah, TIP. Yeah, that maybe. sounds right. Yeah. Turn in poachers. For yeah, turn in poachers. And so he said, go see if he'll help you. Yeah. And so we went out there. I can remember to this day, Jeff and I sitting in the lobby of his, you know, like it was a small thing, went in there and met him, and he said, yeah, I'll do it. And he actually got it done. Hmm. So that was that was crucial. Yeah. Um, you so know, just a couple house cleaning items for folks that are listening and maybe don't know some of these names. Jeff Finden obviously was the first president and CEO of the uh, of Pheasants Forever, right? right? And right. for a time there, Pheasants Forever was officed out of his basement, right? Absolutely. So, and again, backing up to the sequence, the, the first banquet, which was April 15th, 1983, right? right. Tax, yep. tax day in 1983. That was crucial to us for a lot of reasons. And we wanted to make it, ultimately, I you know I kept writing through the paper. My column would say, we're going to have a banquet, we're going to have a banquet. And most banquet organizers, as you guys know, don't have that advantage mm-hmm. where somebody's just driving people to it. But on the other hand, this was a, a no one's heard of it group. And, you know, there's all kinds of cynicism. There was a competing, kind of a competing group that existed at the time called MAFLAS, Minnesota Association of Farmers, Landowners, and Sportsmen. They saw it as a threat kind of to them. And, uh, you know, kind of to be honest as well, the local Ducks Unlimited people saw it as a threat as well, taking money out of the conservation community for some fly-by-night idea, you know. So I can remember Jeff and I at lunchtime, um, we, so we contracted for a post office box in the downtown St. Paul post office. So we would at lunchtime walk from the Pioneer Press down there, take the key, which it probably Jeff handled because I would have lost it, and, <laughs> and put the key in there and turn it and open and see if there was anything in there, uh-huh. you know, which was send us 15 or 30 bucks or whatever the cost was for right. the first banquet. And, uh, but it, it turned out to be a huge success and we, you know, it was a big drumbeat and we got lots of, and meanwhile, I was forming the board of directors, mm. which again, Norb helped me with. Right. And Bob and, Larson, who we mentioned, yeah. was the first secretary and served as secretary for 30 plus years. A long time. Um, and critically what we did was I, I selected people who, some of whom were sort of uh, celebrity type mm-hmm. all-star conservation people bud grant um bud and ted Berger. you guys probably don't remember Berger brothers sure. but they were they sold out to what it was gander mountain 
um, Gander, now Gander Outdoors mm-hmm. stores, but they were the outdoorsmen, and they're actually uh, super, they're identical twins, mm-hmm. and they're super valid outdoorsmen. I mean, they did it. Mm-hmm. They did it all. They're really great guys, and they now live kind of on a compound up outside of Bemidji on the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, two better guys you'll never know. But so I put Bud and Ted on there, uh, Berger, Bud Grant, and then another guy who um, was uh, was Nagley. Yeah, Bob Nagley, yeah. who was uh, the all-star rich guy conservationist duck hunter, mm-hmm. and I I got to him. He owned Nagley Outdoors, right. which every billboard around had Nagley underneath it. And if folks listening recognize the name, the owner, the first owner of the Minnesota Wild was Bob Nagley's son. And also, not necessarily the inventor, I'm, this, I'm way outside my expertise here, but not necessarily the inventor, but he also brought you the rollerblade, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ultra wheels. Yeah. Okay. So, Jimmy Robinson, now we go to a different little sidebar, but an important one. Jimmy Robinson was uh, an out. It's too, it belittles him to call him an outdoor writer, um, but that's really what he was. But he was, at the time, he died in like 1986 at age 86. I think he died in 88 at age 86. Um, so in the early 80s, he was still late 70s, 80 years old. But he, to me, now predating all this, going back to my college days and before and reading outdoor literature, he was like... Um, not quite maybe a god, but something like that, you mm-hmm. know. But he, he and he lived in uh, St. Louis Park. Mm-hmm. That was their home. But he was the trap and skeet editor for um, Sports of Field magazine back in the 30s and 40s. And you have to remember, trap and skeet at the time was the coolest activity for Hollywood moguls Hmm. and the upper class and other people aspired to it. So when he showed up at the Grand American in Ohio and wrote, and he also selected, he alone selected the All-American team for which, which was the greatest honor ever. When he showed up, he was treated like royalty mm. and he designated the all-american team as i said and then also shot skeet with clark gable and um oh, annie oakley a who's who of you know the real deal so and he also conducted if you can imagine this and i kind of allude not rare in a column i published in friday i kind of alluded to this but he conducted his own spring uh, duck counts for Sportsfield magazine. Got in an airplane and flew across the Canadian prairies, and then he was the one who told you less so than the Fish and Wildlife, more yeah, so yeah. than the Fish and Wildlife Service. So he was also a nut. He loved to fish, and he was grew up in. He was, uh, I think, he was an orphan. Grew up in Winnipeg. Was a hockey player, a baseball player, and a World War One veteran. I mm. want to say right, and a short guy. And uh, a character. <laughs> Just like me. Yeah. And a character. Bo- Bob and Jared are wondering what the heck that has to do with anything. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, well, Being the short guys. Well, no, but he was an athlete. and That's what mm-hmm. I meant. And a baseball player. And so he, um, he's the guy who then I, be- I befriended. He befriended me. So I went over his house and everything. So he was on this whole um, cash cow 
I mean, if he he walked up to Bob Nagley as he did, Bob Nagley published his books for him. Hmm. And I remember one time he said, "All right, I got this." And they were always published or printed up in Detroit Lakes. So I can't remember exactly what that scam was, some, <laughs> something. But they're published up there, and I can remember him calling uh, Nagley up, and I was in the house with him. And he said, "All right, all right," and he talked, "All right, all right, all right." And then, I got the book ready. I got the book. Ready. How many are you gonna take? And Nagley, I would learn later, said. You know, he knew the thing. He said ten thousand, <laughs> and he said, and Jimmy says ten thousand. You cheap son of a bitch. <laughs> so he was uh, he was everything, and he raised more money for Ducks Unlimited huh. than anybody. And so anyway, I befriended him, and he's the guy who got me. I said, we need some money to start this bird club. Yeah, you know, we need something. And uh, so he called up Nagley right there, and he says, yeah, he needs three thousand bucks. Just send it to him. And then he called up another guy, Vern Annenson, whose family still owns Old Dutch potato mm. chips. Mm-hmm. And he was—he owned the Minneapolis Gun Club at the time. And he said, uh, yeah, this guy needs 3000 bucks." And he said, okay, just send me the bill. <laughs> so he sent 3000 wow. bucks. So when we had that money to start the banquet, but for Jeff to leave the Pioneer Press, mm-hmm. we didn't have any money until we had the banquet. And the banquet had to be a success, or we had to go to Plan B or C, which we didn't have. And <laughs> um, so we kept, I kept pushing the banquet through the column and so forth. And it turned out we had, I think, as I recall, about 800 people there. The governor spoke, and the governor that very day signed the pheasant stamp bill. Mm-hmm. And um, do you remember what you raised for that first banquet? Well, I know that we needed. I think we said we needed twenty-five to get Jeff through the first year, and I think you know he was making more than that at the Pioneer Press. But um, Jeff was always pretty good with money and had some could afford it and didn't want to keep working at the Pioneer Press. Mm-hmm. He wanted out of there, and so I don't remember. I want to say it was between thirty and forty, mm-hmm. and we needed twenty-five. And so shortly thereafter, then. Jeff left, and then he had friends, uh, one of whom I remember was a pilot at, no- at then Northwest Airlines who was, had carpentry skills, which I don't have, and he helped remodel Jeff's basement and make it into a makeshift wow. office. Huh. So, yeah. It's, it's amazing because you say, um, <clears throat> you know, 800 people at that first banquet, which is, you know, pretty well documented over history. And I've had probably in the 16 years I've worked here, 2,500 people claim to have been at that bank. Yeah, right. Right? Yeah, right. It's like, oh, yeah, I was at the, you know, 1968 Tigers Cardinals World Series. You yeah. know, there's millions of people that say they were Woodstock there. is the usual it, reference. Woodstock, yeah. right? And, yeah. uh, yeah. It, but uh, people, in <laughs> retrospect, they want to have been at that. I mean, that's... Well, that's, it, when we did get people, not just from the Twin Cities, but from all over, because yeah. we had by then... And our traveling road show that we had was a slideshow that DNR put together about, it probably still exists somewhere. You guys heard of slideshows, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it was on a carousel, and we got that. And so Jeff and I, I can remember, we'd go all the way to Jackson County in the far southwest corner of the state. That's not a small poke mm-hmm. in winter. And we would find one person there who would have written me or called me and say, here, we're coming out, can you put five or ten together? And it was the same old thing. And so we'd show them this and say, this is our plan. Mm -hmm. And then I can remember many others um, up in uh, Stearns County was a huge reaction up there. We got a great chapter out there. Stevens County, ultimately, and Candioy County, as I mentioned before. 
Oh. And a lot of those guys are still involved up till today. Yeah. I mean, they still run some of those banquets and, and run some of those committee meetings. And, you know, it's yeah. it's pretty cool. It is, yeah. It's kind of hard to believe, too. Um, but there is uh, something about, well, we're doing a couple things. One, it's a resident species, so we're dealing with a resident species, and nobody had done that before. Mm -hmm. And the critical thing, too, was how ultimately, and this is a story, under, really a book unto itself, but how we decided to share the proceeds. Yeah. That, that was, that was um, uh, it was almost a break point, really. We, we knew when we took the money from that first banquet that, we're we're running the show, which is a bit scary because you know zooming ahead when there were banquets up in Stearns County and up in Fergus Falls and so forth, and I would be asked to go up there or speak or something, and I would drive up there in my truck and I'd pull in and there were pickups as far as you could see, and you know there were hundreds and hundreds of people who had gathered mm -hmm. for this idea, mm -hmm. and um, so. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I can only imagine how people with real big, you know, political type of motivations who actually saw some of those come to pass and not to, not to go to the flip side, you know, but like Hitler and so forth, who had these <laughs> weird ideas about things, but they singularly believe them. Mm -hmm. And there are many others, of course, singularly believe them. And they sort of through force of personality luck and especially timing mm -hmm. you know timing which you can't control just that's uh, serendipitous you know and, and and you throw that idea out there and suddenly there's whole bunches of people converging on it and yeah. validating it it's, it's kind of were, a spooky feeling well, actually. You're, you're headed right to where i wanted to talk about uh, the model um but, but let, before that the idea that the organization would be focused around habitat seems completely intuitive in 2019 was it so obvious in two, in 1982 that the focus of this nonprofit pheasant oriented organization should be working on habitat as opposed to anything else under the sun you know hunters rights mm -hmm. releasing birds it was focused from the very beginning on habitat restoration mm -hmm. it, um yeah, there are multiple answers to that. First one was I was a believer, not because I'm a biologist, but because I had been told by a biologist that that's the way it was, and mm -hmm. it seemed real obvious to me. And Minnesota's history up at Carlos Avery Game Farm, we used to raise pheasants for releasing, and that got thrown away, and you know, as a bad idea, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, and then kind of continue when we got going. So it was okay and easy sell for the people we had on the board, including a guy by the name of Dave Vassell, who is a great guy now passed away, who was a former fish and wildlife uh, chief for the Minnesota DNR. Mm -hmm. And he was one of those guys who started that Save the Wetlands thing in 1950. He's mm -hmm. a great guy and a great conservationist. But he, among others, convinced us that this is the only way you're going to get pheasants. So put and take thing is not going to work, you know. And it's not going to work as a... As a, a conservation measure, it's not going to work as a bird club kind of, um, you know, backbone. So, and that credit, at that point then, that at some point, you know, I had to go back to my real job and, you know, not, and that's kind of why we had Jeff there. We needed somebody to have a real, you know, it's his focus. Right. So those were among the many wars he had to 
struggle with as we expanded because there were always people who called us and said, that's BS. You right. know, you're not let's release get, birds. Let's, let's release birds. do predator control. Yeah. There let's still is. Yeah, it's, it's not any different today. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, still yeah. get those. Thanks, Dennis. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> he had to overcome that. And, you know, and, and some people, and that's the thing about growing something. And if, you know, it's the same, I'm sure, with a company. As you grow, you're going to find some people can grow with you. Their skills are good enough, so they grow with you. You keep them around. Other people were okay at the initial part, um, mm. but they're not, you know, they're not suited for as the thing gets growing and different and different dynamics takes mm. on. So that's something you have to deal with. That's, that's an issue. And the other idea is um, you're always sort of accommodating to the degree you have to while trying to stay true and accommodate tries to say true. I can remember when we took the idea to Iowa, right? Mm-hmm. And that was when Iowa was killing a million birds a year. Mm-hmm. And we went down there and said, hey, we're from Minnesota where we don't kill Jack, and relatively speaking. <laughs> and we have this idea that's going to help you, and we want you to give us your money. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of questions about that, you know. And so there were a lot of... You know, Jeff was way better at that than sitting around with them afterwards and having a beer and talking to them and working through that than I was. You know, that that wasn't, I didn't have time for that. That wasn't really my lick. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, there's a thousand of those. Yeah. Charles but, City, Iowa. That's the, the very first. Yeah. And Iowa people. Pioneer. Pi- Iowa Pioneer. Chapter. Yeah, Iowa Pioneer, yeah. yeah. People and, don't realize, you know, beginning of time, Iowa was Iowa was the ruler of pheasants for a long time, mm-hmm. even over you know D- South Dakota and some of the other states. People throw up, and I think they shot a million birds. I think twenty five years in a row, um, which is pretty mm-hmm. different. Pretty big at that time, so yeah. I can imagine it's hard to when they're already shooting that many birds. They think they got something going, you know, going right down there, which yeah. they did at the time. But right. things change, and right. they change fast. And and again, there was that you know we had the model by then, which was okay. The model was you can raise the money. It's a resident species. You can keep most of the money, but you're going to give us. Might have initially been ten bucks. I can't remember. Or it might have been fifteen for the membership. For the membership, yep. and so for a long, long time, we survived on that, and then the money from the Metro Twin Cities banquet here, oh, okay. St. Paul. That we took, maybe Minneapolis too, um, and then uh, we took the fifteen here. And so this, not that many years later, obviously, um, Howard could tell you, Howard Vincent, but we brought him on as uh, first as he was, and he can clarify this, but he was, I think, brought on kind of as a volunteer with his company. Yeah, he was a volunteer and maybe was a volunteer for about a year. From his company. Yep. I think his company allowed him or sent him. I don't think he was just doing it in his spare time. You're right. Yep. Yeah. And And then he became the controller. Yeah. Which we need a lot of, and not, <laughs> and not the, not just the P or the T. Um, and that was another thing, you know. Jeff was, uh, Finden was a. Um, one of his attributes was that he was in. I don't know. You could say cheap, you know. He watched the dollar, and then Howard came on too, because I've seen other. We call it fis- fiscally conservative. conservative. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and that was a thing that I, I, you know, I was a chairman for the first three years uh-huh. or president or whatever, and I was on the executive committee for 15 years, and it was my reputation if this thing went up in smoke mm-hmm. and some guy's stealing money or, you know, something obvious, 
like that uh, that was all going to I was going to suffer the most publicly that's the way I looked at it and so I was happy that that's the way yeah, they you approached had a good it fit. yeah and um and they did they did that they managed the money as we went from his basement to a house in White Bear Lake which was kind of a weird house but it was a house and we used it as an office. <laughs> that was haunted too. <laughs> yeah. It was right across from what is now Polar Shelf. Yeah. It it yeah. reminds me because there's a there's a picture I look at it just about every day over on the we've got two sides of our office here for, for listeners and when we walk out of uh the PR and, and marketing side, there's a picture there and it's it's you and Finden and Howard Vincent sitting in a room and it, it looks like a spare spare bedroom or something with <laughs> with a bunch of file cabinets, you know. Yeah. And as you're talking about this, it just kinda right. rakes my mind a little bit, like, yeah, that, that was a that was a time in our history when, you know, we're getting off the ground and getting things going and everybody had more <laughs> hair back then and you know I think we J- bought the house. Jared too. still hits it every day on his way out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like like a Notre Dame football player going through the tunnel and he, <laughs> and he smacks That's it. That's right. I, I played J V for one uh, one fall. <laughs> so you you've touched on the model a couple of times, but I do want to hear the story. Um so, so listeners that maybe aren't familiar, a local chapter has a banquet and raises twenty thousand at their banquet. Um, they send in $35 per membership to the organization, which funds the, the, the organization and our ability to do um, fuel the magazine, work in D.C., do all sorts of things that an, you'd expect out of a national organization. But the money raised locally outside of those membership dues stays under the control of that local volunteer group to do habitat work in, that own, in their own community. Mm-hmm. Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are the only national organizations in the conservation world functioning through that model. And that was conceived pres- mm-hmm. presumably sometime between 82, 83, 84. In my shower, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us about that, yeah. but leave out some uh, of the details, I guess. The, uh, it was uh, okay. So as soon as we got the money with Jeff and we got him going, that was we that was straightforward. But almost simultaneous with that, we had the banquet starting and organizing out in uh, in the Wil- Wilmer area. And there were Doug Lavander and a great bunch of guys, many of whom are still involved out there in conservation. And then a woman who was at the time working for the I want to say the Board of Water and Soil Resources Bowser. Mary Beth Block was her name. I don't know if you ever met her. She now works for DNR. I think she's in charge of the prairies or part of the prairie program. Anyway, she was out there, and uh, she was, you know, so I went out there to meet, you know, what could be based on conversations, you know, a bunch of yahoos um, (laughs) or, you know, a bunch of conservationists or some some you know, um, combination thereof. And that wasn't just for their county or for any, you know, because we're talking about, you know, starting from scratch here and everybody has their own idea about mm-hmm. it, you know, and what they're going to do. And some people want to do it because, they, you know, a little bit like church because they want to be in charge. Other people want to do it because they really believe in the religion. You yeah. know what I mean? There are right. all kinds of versions. So <laughs> they went out there and uh, 
boy, and Doug Lavander was a kingpin, but he had all these other guys who were just wacko for pheasants too, you know. And uh, so they put together a banquet, and they had 500 people out there. I mean, he couldn't sell any more tickets. And Joe Alexander, the DNR commissioner, came out. And I want to go back to Bill Farmer. for He is so funny that he became part of, because of Finden and me, he was a closer buddy. He's close to both of us. But anyway, he would, for I don't know how we got to this, but it was relatively soon thereafter that he would dress in drag at our banquets. And he would be this character... <laughs> Um, I haven't I, heard this story. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is well, it's in, it's in a couple of those photos, actually, from the first banquet. At the first banquet, he's dressed in drag. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, he's, Who knew? Yeah, well, right. And uh, he's talking, in one of the photos, he's talking to the governor. I know that. But anyway, Farmer was just, and he would, the, the, the key there was he was, we wanted to deliver in our banquets. We felt the, was, everybody's model was, Okay, they come, they, you know, you get a banquet, you have a beer, you're supposed to give a lot of money. Well, we wanted to make ours unique, otherwise it wouldn't, maybe wouldn't survive, you mm-hmm. know. So that first banquet in St. Paul, we had a band, the Stony Lonesome, I remember that, and I think they still exist in some form. And they were good, and we had that, and that we found out was an unnecessary expense, you know, after a while. And, um, and then we also had, Jeff had this friend who was a computer guy who worked for Unisys, I think, and we computerized all of the, they, I didn't have any idea that they computerized all of the raffle prizes and awards and all that stuff. Hmm. So as soon as uh, we, somebody drew a thing out of the hat, it went in and da, da, da. And, and so the checkout was like speedy and, and all the stuff. So I remember Bill Farmer was out at that banquet also. So anyway, they raised like 25 grand or 30 grand. And Lovander, we call him governor because there was a governor in the state, Lovander. So uh, Lovander is calling me all the time, and basically he says, uh, I got the 25 grand. What are you going to do about it? And I said, you know, and he, and he, that might not be literally true in terms of the sequence of events, but it's pretty close to being true yeah. because he was calling our bluff, which was, what do you who are you guys right why don't we just raise this money you know so you have this name pheasants forever we'll call ourselves something else and as you know there are a couple counties in this state mm-hmm. that that did stay pope county was one and steel county another mm-hmm. i think still i don't know if pope county still exists but <clears throat> yeah i think there's a there's a group in pope county yeah. and there's a different group in steel, steel county Bluers. yeah they still exist and and they basically say well we'll just be us and we'll take the money you know so um, you know, we couldn't, couldn't have, and in my mind and the mind of others now involved, the board and Jeff and so forth was, we couldn't succeed unless we had, we were only thinking Minnesota at the time, necessarily, not necessarily national. We couldn't succeed unless we had a group effort and, you know, kind of obviously, I guess. So, um, uh, we kept thinking about it and, uh, you know, kicking it around and Jeff and I are thinking around, you know, and. Lovander was definitely a, a tough cookie to deal with. He wasn't going to just give it up and say, hope for the best. Mm-hmm. So um, I remember I was in my shower and uh, thinking <laughs> about him. And I said, well, let him keep it. You know. And um, so subsequent conversations that I can't remember, which are were many, um, I'm sure, we figured out a thing, which was the, that model, which was we would say, you keep, per member thing and mm-hmm. send us a rest and we'll figure out a way to survive again that was jeff's problem figure out a way to survive with it so um 
we I, I roughed that in for Lovander over the phone, you know, and he said, we got to have a meeting. And so Jeff and I and Bob Larson hmm. got in the car. I still remember picking up Bob out in Wyzetta someplace, and we went out to Lovander's place on Eagle Lake just north of Wilmer, and he had set up, and this is great, he had set up a huge circus tent, mm-hmm. and we were having pheasant, of course, for all of his buddies and us. So there was at least 20, maybe 25, and we're having pheasant. And I'm saying, I remember saying you know, to Jeff, I think, uh, you know, what's the point here? <laughs> we're eating up more than we can save here. So, um, But they, they cooked up this pheasant outdoors, and we ate. Then we all uh, assembled in the tent around this long table, and Lovander was sitting at one end with dark glasses on. You know, I had later I would see something similar like to that, and when I saw on TV the discussions with the Uganda president, you know, who was uh, (laughs) who was who killed thousands of people, you know, or he was going to decide how this was going to be settled. So Lovander's at the end of the table with with sunglasses on, and uh, uh, we all agreed to it that that would be how how it would work. And so he deserves a lot of credit, and uh, and of course Jeff had to execute it, and um, and then we had to make it work. Mm-hmm. You know, without that money from the Metro Bank, we wouldn't have initially as it got going. But then, you know, as we got going, that's where you know Jeff and and Howard had to earn their money mm-hmm. because they had to see the money coming in, the money going out, and figuring how we could also expand. And ultimately hire our first guy out there, Wooly. Yeah, Jim Wooly, Wooly first yeah. biologist. That was a ner- <clears throat> that was a nervous cat mm-hmm. because he had a real job. <laughs> yeah, he worked for the Iowa DNR. <laughs> he was yeah, a, he was he was their pheasant biologist, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, their lead upland, one. Yeah, biologist. he had a real job. So how'd you a, how'd you coax him then? Oh, it was tough uh, with a with a mortgage, you know, and all this, and we had this upstart club, club and uh, it was uh, it was multiple conversations, but uh, you know, he signed on to his credit made the jump and that val- helped validate us which is critical well when did you know that there was magic here that that things were taken off for many years uh in my column even in 93 i went over to the minneapolis paper but it, for many years at pheasant season opener i would document where pheasants forever is i'm sure i've done that and you've mm-hmm. seen some of them occasionally but um it it took off it, you know, I would have to say within five or six years, it was hard to argue that absent messing up, you know, mm-hmm. in the money or something like that, um, or some, you know, some kind of personnel uh, conflagration, um, all those things that befall companies. Sure. And that's what one thing, too. We we looked this, at this as a company, and it's one reason we didn't have... Um, and never have had, not to say the club won't. I don't. I don't have any say in it anymore. But um, won't someday have a biologist as a leader? But um, it was an easy decision for me uh, to not only because I knew Jeff to go outside that model, which mm-hmm. is more common in the other groups. And mm-hmm. the, the U, we. I mean, we have a hundreds of biologists. Pheasants Forever does right. working. The, the majority field. of the employees, it's almost uh, close to 70% of all employees are biologists. Arguably too many in this room, I'm sure, from your point of view. But, <laughs> We're bar <but> stool <laughs> biologists here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's not a bad time <laughs> to be, actually. Um, 
you know, so we're, we're it wasn't rubes. Uh, so he wasn't. It wasn't a bad thing for me to think that way, and for actually the group. And don't forget, we had real biologists on that on mm-hmm. the board of directors, but we also had businessmen. And I can't give Norb, you know, enough credit because uh, one, you can imagine. So I formed this board of directors and, and said to him, instead of we're meeting in some basement or a meeting over in some back room of a Legion club or something, not that there's anything wrong with the back rooms of a Legion club. I've been to many <laughs> weddings there. But um, we, Norb, made available. First of all, we needed furniture for Jeff's basement in that house. And for, mm-hmm. was this our next office where we are? Uh, no, there was a Labor Road. Oh, yeah, Labor Road. Yeah, right. Now over there. Norb would go, you know, we had a huge corporation, 60,000 employees, and they had stacks of desks and things that were unused. Mm. So next thing you know, we get a shipment of desks. Yeah. I, I think I have one of those desks. <laughs> Still today. Oh, yeah. 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 My uh, back thanks you for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, so, and so when we held a board meeting, they had uh it still exists down there right overlooking what is now National Wildlife Refuge, an old mansion called the Bluff House that Control mm-hmm. Data owned. So our board would show up there on time at when, they, when the board meeting was being held, and there was uh, essentially a concierge waiting there. There were drinks available, water and so forth. There was dinner mm-hmm. afterwards, and it was uh, the same boardroom that the Control Data Board used. And so it again, all of those things were an advantage um, that serendipitously helped bring things together, and including timing. You know, hmm. Timing is so important, and I think you know there are a lot of um, well, mostly physics people and other scientists who believe that ideas come at certain times rather than necessarily through an individual. Sure. That if they don't come through individual B, they'll come through individual C. Um, and I don't know whether that's true or not, but I think it's generally true. Time, yeah. Timing's critical. Speaking of timing, so let's, uh, you write the article <clears throat> in um, the Pioneer Press, and that's March 7th, 1982. The first banquet occurs April 15th, 1983. Mm-hmm. And December... So we, we incorporated August 5th, 1982, so we incorporated about six months after the first column and about six months before the first banquet. And then in December of 85, the Farm Bill includes the Conservation Reserve Program for mm-hmm. the first time. So, you know. It started right with, it started right here, and that very few people know that. But same bluff house, same meeting. Two guys are important. Roger Holmes was the DNR wildlife director at the time, now passed on. And then the pheasant biologist who retired, he's going to. Not let me get away with forgetting his name, but uh, lives in Mankato now. Kurt Haroldson? Not no. quite, uh, before him. <laughs> um, but uh, he, those two, impressed upon us. At the time, there was a different type of farm program. It was called the, uh, it was an annual program. I can't remember what it was called, but it was an annual program. So if you were a farmer, they'd come to you and say, well, you got this, yeah, this set-aside portion of acres, but it's just an annual thing. Well, no farmer was ever going to commit any real money in terms of seed and time and so forth for something that the next year might be plowed up and mm-hmm. be put into the plow and so forth. So uh, they brought um, the idea to us, and Tim Bremerker, the former wildlife chief, was there as well. They brought the idea to us and said, 
what this country needs is a multi-year conservation program. And that, that genesis of that went back to the forming of Pheasants Forever because what we said when we, when we supported the pheasant stamp, which was an uphill battle that took two years, when we supported the pheasant stamp, even before we were kind of born mm-hmm. or driving it, that a portion of the pet pheasants proceeds, Roger Holmes would organize other states, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, so forth, and send that to the Wildlife Management Institute in Washington and lobby for a farm program that was multi-year conservation mm. oriented. So that whole concept started there. The money from the pheasant stamp here in Minnesota joined other money, went to the Wildlife Management Institute, and again, timing at the, if you remember the early 80s, farmers were going broke, they were losing their farms to banks and so forth. They needed the cash flow as well, and so uh, those two forces united, and ultimately the Conservation Reserve Program was born in the 85 Farm Bill, as you say. And, and did you know instantly that that was going to be a game changer for yeah, the mission? Yeah, it, it, it was uh, so many acres were dumped into it because, you know, there was no money to be made or people were losing their farms, and mm-hmm. it was a big deal. You know, and then, and then every year since then, as you know, it's been a battle, so. And, you know, and rightly so in some respects because it's a lot of money, you know, from a taxpayer's point of view. There were probably too many acres put in more as cash flow Mm -hmm. to farmers than for reasons of conservation originally or at periods during that. Anything, you know, we we talked about Jim Woolley, the first biologist hired. Any other major milestones in the early years that uh, you look at and say, Boy, I'm glad it happened that way. Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm sure there are a ton of them. Um, the you know the growing membership was a big deal. The uh, willingness of people to serve on the board hmm. um, was a big deal. Um, and that you see today, I see from afar. You know, and I'm not involved with it now, but I see from afar. You get real high quality people mm-hmm. who are willing to donate their time. Um, that's critical. And who believe in the mission? That's critical. Um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, for many years. It was just uh, a slugfest. Again, I after the <laughs> initial time, I ran. I, I was part of the board and I ran, helped run that part of it. And another critical part, to be honest, too, was again help H.B. Fuller, which isn't too far from your mm-hmm. office here. Tony Anderson, who was the CEO of that company, his dad was a former governor, and founded that company or helped in its beginning. Um, Tony and I fished together a lot, and he sent us his free of charge, his compensation people. Hmm. And that was important as we got, like, multiple employees. I mean, more more than a few. Sure. And we had, at some point, we had to say, okay, we have to, we have to pay a competitive salary. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're not going to get these biologists. Right. You know, We have to pay a competitive salary. How do we do that? And mm-hmm. because Norb was on the board and there were other, Dick Hanasek was also on the board of businessmen at the time, and uh, Larson, I'm sure others too, uh, contributed. But, you know, we needed professional compensation people. So when they, Tony loaned us H.B. Fuller people, came in and... Um, you know, set up that whole system, showed us how to do it and all that. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, we couldn't afford to do that um, otherwise. 
so <clears throat> we've looked backwards a lot, but you're still incredibly involved in the outdoors and conservation. You're the outdoors editor for the Star Tribune. You host your own radio show on KSTP mm. in the Twin Cities. You know as well as anybody what's going on in the the outdoor world from habitat and hunter recruitment. Um, as you look towards the future with through your Pheasants Forever lens, what, um, what, what do you offer as suggestions for the organization to consider in your own crystal ball view of the world? I think, uh, you know, I'm proud of what you guys do. They, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously a, a very professionally run big time operation and, and, uh, everybody should take a lot of pride in that. Uh, addressing what you just said, the, the demographics of the country are changing very quickly, you know, in terms of young kids. Well, younger generations not being as large as baby boomer, mm -hmm. boomers and the, of the smaller, younger generations, not as many are being exposed to hunting and fishing due to urbanization and a lot of other reasons. So they, you're going to fight that battle, and that's going to end where it ends. I mean, I think you're going to... I think in the end, you'll, you and other groups, Pheasants Forever and other groups, will get the maximum number of participants that are possible. I also think that these things come and go in waves and that uh, you will benefit as time goes on from sociological changes that, that seem to hint at a more the, the pleasures of a more pleasures and rewards of a more agrarian mindset, if not uh, necessarily a more agrarian-based society. Um, I can remember, and it's interesting, I just thought about this the other day, when I got out of college um, and, uh, in 73, 70, 70, early 73, um, actually 72, um, the whole kind of this was after after the war was ending the vietnam war mm -hmm. was ending and our people my age had grown up you know with i can still remember sitting on the steps in our house in michigan with the cuban missile crisis mm -hmm. and with people building uh, bomb shelters and, and then um, worried about uh, uh, the cold war and all-out war with at that time the soviet union and then with uh, martin luther king Martin Jack, John Kennedy first, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy getting killed, mm -hmm. the uh, um, Democratic National Convention, which was basically a full-fledged riot in Chicago in 1968, the Tet Offensive in 1968 and the Vietnamese War, Lyndon Johnson refusing to run again, and then ultimately Nixon being elected and then his downfall. Mm -hmm. I mean, we weren't believers in a lot of uh, the whole kind of, well, increasingly, I don't mean to speak for a whole generation, obviously. Um, leave that to Bob Dylan. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, increasingly, we looked around and said, this, none of this is, is something to aspire to, you mm. know, especially, and this is an exagger exaggeration to a degree, but kind of true, especially a bigger house in a better subdivision. You know, that whole idea of, you know, if I can get some more money and I have a bigger house and then I, I'll be feel validated and this would be a good thing, you know, and I'll get on the road and head to the, my cubicle and every day. Um, and instead what was in the ether, as I recall, and certainly affected me when I was getting out of college, was a move 
uh, and uh, again, to make it a trite here, back to the land, as it were, mm-hmm. to move to small towns, and that's, and to not take that kind of straightforward, you know, kind of straight-laced job. Yep. I mean, shit, everything seemed goofy, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything seemed upside down. Right. Why would we? Why would we do that? You know, and um, so it seemed extraordinarily sensical to me at the time to do what I did, which was take a job driving truck over the road. Mm-hmm. Um, one, there weren't a lot of, for English majors, there weren't a lot of good paying <laughs> jobs. I did interview and was offered one job for $105 a week with a newspaper. And uh, and I said, and I remember looking at him and uh, saying, you know, I thought I looked at him and I said, you, you're talking about American dollars, right? <laughs> and uh, that was it. So... Um, I got a job driving a truck coast to coast for a couple of years before, two and a half years before I went back to grad school. Hmm. And that seemed reasonable to me. I mean, other people, you know, went to grad school or got real jobs. But in the ether at the time and subsequent after, subsequently even later in the mid-70s after finishing grad school, it seemed normal to me to move to Ely, mm-hmm. you know, to move out of the city and so forth. Well, um, and this wasn't unusual. Uh, coming back to the land movement, uh, starting in the, the environmental movement, the 60s and so forth. Well, you've seen all of that flip around now, you know, mm-hmm. with the growth of the urbanization of, right. the, of the country and so forth. Um, having said that, these things come and go, you know, and I think that a valid program such as Pheasants Forever's is going to adjust and uh, continue to thrive. I do think that there is room, um, I think there's room for this very model to be replicated uh, as a green model in probably as many communities as Pheasants Forever is in today or in uh, uh, maybe more, you know, where you talk about Wilmer being our first outside bank when you go into Mm -hmm. Wilmer and say, we're going to hold a community banquet and we're going to raise, you know, again, with a centrally organized group uh, organization that offers a magazine so we're going to raise $25,000 here but what we're going to do is have water gardens in the in the town and we're going to take care of you know this cesspool that we've got on the edge of town and so forth because that's really what to me is out there right now there's way more people out there looking to do that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. than there is to create habitat create habitat for pheasants and so forth Hmm. But, you know, and global warming will probably benefit pheasants, too, for a while, you know, I would think, you know, as it increases. Uh, until it won't. Until it won't. As long yeah. as it's not too wet. Yeah, uh, until it won't. Um, ducks might have a harder time, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, um, when you think back on, you know, 30-plus years, uh, and particularly the, the origin story, what, what uh, what do you let feeling most gratification or satisfaction about related to pheasants forever? You know, I'm just glad there's a lot of people involved in it. And there's a lot of energy, it gives people hope. You know, I don't take credit for any of uh, any of that stuff other than the start of it. You know, where we started and that. Um, but the idea popped over, and there's all kinds of look at all those things you do to spread the word. You know, and get people excited and involved and everything and. Um, uh, that's that's the good thing, you know, the generator. It's it's interesting that um, uh, 
all of these uh, things have, you know, like, and this is one thing Bob Larson said, I remember, remember early on in a board meeting, he said, you know, and it is true, businesses have lives, you know, they have, when they're born, and then they have growth spurts, and then they tend to plateau or not, and then they have to diverge and take in other kind of enterprises to keep the thing rolling, and, you know, some parts of it die, and so forth. Um, I think here you're dealing with a you know, as uh, Aldo Leopold said, you know, you're dealing with something that, that is so, and Sigurd Olson as well, they're so intrinsic to people mm-hmm. that yeah, um, the part that allows a person to get up in the in the morning and say, um, hmm, the ride into the office and the sitting in the cubicle, I understand that part, but seeing a pheasant alongside the road or a duck um, or a goose flying overhead, you know, that's a part that that kind of got me interested during the day and, and that got me thrilled. And I think that as long as you're leveraging um, those native interests and doing it, um, you know, efficiently, I think that uh, it's a bright future. Jared, Anthony, any uh, any questions that uh, have been left <laughs> you, un, unasked? Yeah, well, I'll just say for, for Jared, you know, he – he uh, he comes in every day, and the first thing he does, he has the luxury of living adjacent to a wildlife area. No, it is a luxury. That's managed by pheasants forever. And he comes and he comes in every day, and the first thing he does is show me what he's seen on the <laughs> drive-in. What was it this morning? Uh this morning. Oh, got to go on the the way back machine. Oh yeah, twenty wood ducks in the uh, <laughs> in the in the, mowing some uh, some leftover grain the in a field, field. next yeah. door. Usually it's yeah. pheasants, but you saw twenty wood ducks. Yep. Wow. Great. All Drakes. Yeah. Together. Yeah. Pretty so cool. We we still uh we still get there apart. I saw two golden eyes on my way in this morning up on uh up on a little body of water in mm-hmm. White Bear Lake. So um yeah, this has been uh, uh I'd say profoundly interesting to me. You know, I was like I said, um kind of in an uh kind of a semi embryonic state when you were doing this <laughs> getting this whole thing rolling. Uh and so it's just been incredibly interesting and fascinating. And you just wonder where we go from here. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been all this work. I, um, you know, I, it's funny how like the tentacles of life and time go. And cause like I can drive six or seven miles from where I grew up and there's, uh, a wildlife area called the, the 25th anniversary, you know, 25th anniversary pheasant stamp wma mm-hmm. i grew up in western mm-hmm. minnesota what we call here west central minnesota yeah and, right. uh, in lacoparo county and so you know that that first banquet that you you know you describe that piece of ground that i hunt occasionally exists because of that mm-hmm. or there's a you know a section sized piece uh, out near marietta um, named after dave vassal mm-hmm. right who you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier and you know you hear these names and Roger Holmes. Roger Holmes. WMA There's a Alexandria mm-hmm. area there that direction, 1,100 acres. Mm-hmm. And uh, so your mind just gets spinning to, you know, those types of things. And then my dad was a chapter volunteer, one of these guys like so mm-hmm. many are describing who, um, I don't know, probably showed up at a meeting to get a few beers and was sucked in for mm-hmm. 20 years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now here I am, you know, and I sit there and I look at the guys like Bob and Jared who – you can draw some distinct comparisons. We're not biologists, we're rubes, but we have biologists here. And it's like, we're on this growth trajectory of, you know, you're talking from, Hey, we're in a, 
we're in a basement in in mm-hmm. in White Bear Lake, and now we have 400 employees, and we're doing all sorts of good things, but it's still not enough. But we're still keeping at it. Mm-hmm. And and when you look at it, I mean, we have conversations every day where. <laughs> Jared and I don't like getting people who, you know, the inquiries about stocking or people who have given up or it just feels insurmountable or everything's getting plowed up. There's no pheasants left in Minnesota. And it's like, well, that can drag you down, mm-hmm. you know, especially when you've been here, like, uh, you know, the better part of two decades like Bob has, or, you know, more than a decade like me, but you know, on all, it's like, it can be a pretty bright future. There's still a world, world of opportunity. And so it, it it's kind of, I guess what's most interesting is that it started from essentially like, you know, like, uh, like the big bang, it starts from almost nothing. All of a sudden it's something, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's something really big and it's not done yet. Mm-hmm. So thanks Dennis. You're welcome. You know, the thing is that conservation, yeah, and keep it in perspective. Conservation is, uh, as I like to say, a contact sport, less, <laughs> less so for you folks and then, you know, in, in the newspaper, because I have to, sometimes uh, make politicians aware of just how goofball they can be, you know, in the way that they do things. But <laughs> um, but it is, it, even in your respects, it's a, a struggle. And you don't, it, the struggle is what it is. There is no, unfortunately, there is no end zone in this game. Mm-hmm. You just keep kind of, uh, you know. Three hope- yards in a cloud of dust every day, right? Yeah, hopefully a little more. <laughs> more um well we average obviously five to six yards yeah. carry. <laughs> but that's what like it Jimmy is Clint. and you'll meet people all the time who are naysayers i mean there are people who are naysayers by nature and yeah others who are willing to do more than they ever should do reasonably and logically you know um but uh that's just the nature of the game well the other thing is we did cover a lot of ground and if i do think about that it's uh we had uh you know um, kind of World War II Hitler reference, some Ugandan dictators. <laughs> uh, what else did we have here? Kind of you, 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 yeah, Ugandan dictators. Um, the Godfather. Yeah, Godfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, cross-dressing at banquets. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot, a lot of, of stuff, stuff there yeah, that you can right. really delve into. No. So and you can't. <laughs> that's why it's tough to write a business plan. <laughs> you can't count on those things. Um. Jared, I will, uh, Dennis, I will echo Anthony's sentiments. Uh, number one, I appreciate you coming in, uh, and telling the fascinating story, um, that I think really replicates itself over and over every year at every banquet we host, uh, every land acquisition we do, every habitat project, whether it's on public or private lands, um, you know, it, it really does make a difference. And, you know, getting back to the beginning and our model, I, the selling point for me still continues to be that local model and how transparent we are. We're transparent in everything we do, uh, and I think that's important to people nowadays. Mm-hmm. They want to know what their money is going towards. And, you know, being a staffer here for 10 years, I can honestly say there hasn't been a time when somebody asks a question, I can't give them an honest answer about what, what we spend money on and why we spend money on and, and why some things we, we don't put money towards it. Um, you know, and getting back to the conversation you, you said earlier, you know, what do you see in the future? And I, I agree with you in that I think we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of producers, a lot of landowners out there on the landscape right now, uh, specifically baby boomers that are, are starting to retire. 
Um, you know, and, and especially if you're in the agriculture business and, you know, feeding the world, uh, I think there's a lot of them out there that are starting to figure out, you know, if I'm, if I'm not going to be doing that, how do I give back? Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's starting to come full circle now in that, uh, I had two landowner calls this week. Uh, one was a baby boomer and one was, um, one was a woman. She was a a veterinarian out in Watertown whose parents, uh, recently passed away uh, in southwestern Minnesota, and she was told by one of her coworkers, hey, you know, contact Pheasants Forever. Maybe they can help you come up with a conservation plan. Uh, you know, she's somebody that wants to see sustainable use in the landscape mm-hmm. while still implementing agriculture on there. And, you know, we're, we're a great avenue for that, I think. And, um, you know, staying true to that local model is, is really important. And, you know, Anthony, Anthony brings up all, you know, live next to a wildlife management area. And, and every day I come to work, I get to see something new, sandhill cranes and pheasants and whatnot. And, and I was showing him the other day we had, I pulled out of my driveway. I've got a pheasants forever sign right at the end of my driveway. And we're, we're, we're rural, rural sort of, I'm only five minutes from downtown forest Lake, but there were eight hens, and a single rooster running in the road, just the ratio that I like mm-hmm. to see co- co- coming into spring. Oh, yeah. We've just had a hell of a rough winter here in Minnesota and throughout the pheasant range. Um, and by implementing those habitat projects and, and helping the DNR next door, a local chapter, Washington County Pheasants Forever here in Minnesota has been helping them. Um, I just sort of see that light at the end of the tunnel and that, mm-hmm. listen, there, there can be pheasants forever. Um, and we're helping, we're really helping to implement that. And, um, you know, I've been here 10 years, I've been an officer that whole time. Uh, and I've really, I, I'm drinking that Kool-Aid baby. <laughs> I've literally, I've, I've, nice. I've bought in, we just had our local banquet the other day and I can't be more proud to be a Pheasants Forever member and, uh, and, and, volunteer, uh, volunteer and, and work here at the same time. And, and to have you come in and tell that story, um, I, I think it really resonates with people. Uh, I know it has with me, um, and I'm just I'm just happy to be a part of that story. Mm-hmm. And I hope we we keep going for another 37 years or whatever we're at now. I think it's 37. So mm-hmm. yeah. um, happy to happy to have you in and, and, and tell that story. Yeah, thank you. Well, the good news is I, uh, for you, you're talking about the future, and it's your energy and so forth, and that's what we need. I was just talking about the past, and the, and the past is <laughs> the past is past, and uh, it's in your hands, and I would say able hands as well. Well, they say that uh, you can't um, properly impact the future unless you know your history. So mm-hmm. um, we sincerely appreciate you taking the time to come over to uh, 1783 Berkeley Circle, yeah. the palatial headquarters of Pheasants Forever today. That's um, good. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I really appreciate your time, Dennis. And thanks for writing that article. Yeah, happy to do it. Yep. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a uh, very special conclusion to the Pheasants Forever origin story uh, with Jared Wickland, Anthony Houck, and most importantly, Dennis Anderson. You can read his articles pretty much every weekend, uh, Sunday in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Friday, Sunday. Friday, Sunday, Wednesday. We're, we're struggling for every bit of circulation. Yeah. We can get. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> KSDP AM, Wednesday evenings. Uh, you can listen to them on uh, the radio as well. Uh, and I would encourage you to, to look him up. He's the finest outdoors reporter in the country. 
uh, Star Tribune Outdoors. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. It's been my privilege, my honor. I'm Bob St. Pierre, and uh, tune in next time. Thank you. <laughs>